good morning, everybody. As always, it's great to see you here. And um, hey, just want to give you a little heads up here real quick that, um, that uh, today's message, I might be using a few words um, that and I always try to be very sensitive to all ages that are in the room. But uh, today's message is kind of geared more, I'm thinking, seventh grade and up. And so uh, all are welcome in here, and it's up to you as a parent. But um, I'm trying to help you avoid some interesting conversations on the way home with your kids today. And so just giving you a heads up, I don't know, I don't see a lot of kids in here today, but I'm just sharing out with all of our services today that uh, this might be one of those sermons where you might want to utilize our children's ministry and check them in, and that would be absolutely fantastic if you want to take a minute to do that. It's completely up to you. Before we go to the Word, though, um, how many of you know that our kids are all going back to school tomorrow? How many couldn't be more thrilled about this? Um, okay. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, we're at school already? Um, what we do on this weekend before school starts is we like to pray for our teachers, uh, our administrators, um, anybody that is going to be working with students or in the school system in any capacity, in any way, we want to take a minute. We want to pray for you. And so if you work for our school system in any capacity and, and uh, your life intersects with kids and other adults in the school system, doesn't matter what your role, would you raise your hand real quick? Okay, we see some of our educators and people around. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Keep your hand up so people can look around and identify you. Okay, all right. Can we pray? And if somebody with their hands up close to you, just kind of point towards them, you know, reach for them. You know, we're not going to get up and move around, but just let's, let's just pray for our, 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 our school folks today. Lord, we just uh, take a moment here and we just lift up those in our church family who, um, who their lives intersect with the educational system here in Northwest Arkansas and beyond. And Lord, they are, they are going into a divisive environment tomorrow. And Lord, there's, there's a lot of things hovering over beyond just the education of our kids. Lord, I pray that as they go into uh, whatever role that they are in, Lord, may, they, may your light shine through them. And Lord, would you create opportunities, Lord, and let their lives intersect with those around them that would, uh, that would point to you, Lord. May we truly go into the school year uh, with the mentality of we are Christ ambassadors with the ministry of reconciliation, Lord. And I pray your Holy Spirit lead each and every one of them to just the right words and the right temperament and the right tone. Lord, I pray you give them energy and endurance this year. I pray, Lord, they, they, they have that. They're going to need it, Lord. I pray, Lord, that some of the divisive stuff that's happening in our, in our society over vaccine and mask and those things, Lord, is they will be confronted with things, with parents and students and, and everything else, Lord. I, I pray you give them wisdom, gentleness, kindness, Lord, and, and um, that, Lord, just in whatever your way, let them be uh, a voice of calm and assurance. Lord, may people see the difference in their lives. So, Lord, we just lift up all of these things. Lord, go with them tomorrow and give them energy and endurance and grace in all that they do, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are now in our fifth week of our question series, and this is the series, if this is your first time with us, where, where you ask the questions, I just do the best job I know how to do to answer them biblically and clearly. Some of you have been wondering how many questions have been submitted. We've had 157 submissions through the app. 
um, which is tremendous. And just so you know that, that one submission through the app doesn't mean it was one question. Most of the time it was three or four questions in a row. And so I, I didn't ever go back and count how many actual questions came in. Some of you emailed your questions. I'm gonna say that's well over 250 questions, maybe even 300 questions that have been submitted. And that is an incredible response from our congregation, and I just wanna commend you on that. You have overwhelmed me with your questions, which is exactly what I asked you to do. Now, obviously, I'm not gonna get to all the questions. I'm trying to answer them here, some on the live streams I've been doing throughout the week. I'll try, some of you I'm gonna respond to directly. Um, just if you gave me your email address, um, I'll respond to you directly if I can. But um, uh, this has just been a, a wonderful response, and even if I don't get to your question, this has given me some great insight to our congregation and what's on your mind and what's on your heart and what you're thinking about. So I, I just wanna commend you. Going through all the questions, as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, what became really clear to me is that there were some themes that were, that were arising up. Like a lot of the questions were about this and a lot of the questions were about that. And, 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 and people are asking questions related to and, and one of the themes that really just kind of uh, became very obvious, and, and it would be obvious to you if you're reading the questions back to back and just going through all of these submissions, is that a lot of them had to do with our re relatability as Christians to unbelievers and, and a Christian response to difficult situations, things that are especially associated with Christians when it comes to us sounding judgmental or intolerant or being accused of such things. There was a, a lot of questions about that. So, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, we, there's gonna be a few weeks here that we're addressing those kind of questions. And so, that's what we've been doing here these last few weeks. We started with this question. How do I show the love of God without turning people off by sounding judgmental or intolerant? That's a summation, summation of a lot of questions uh, where we could start there and tackle that. We did that a couple weeks ago. And that question led into another question last week. How should we as Christians relate to people who don't believe the same way we do? So many questions about that right there. If you missed either of those sermons, I encourage you to go back. They're on our website at newlifenwa.com. They'll be there, I guess, forever. And, and go back and, and listen to those. I want you to stay up. It's just an important part of the conversation that I believe should be ongoing here as our church family. I think these are questions that we should be talking about all the time. How do I show the love of God and, and not sound judgmental and tolerant how I do that? How do I relate well to people who don't believe uh, the same way I do? I think that should be an co ongoing conversation we have as a church family. Well, today we're going to conclude this part of our question series by addressing um, a specific subject that many, many, many of you asked about because it relates to judgmental, judgmental and, and the sense of being intolerant from our secular society. It's probably no surprise to you, it was no surprise to me, that there were many questions revolving around the topics of homosexuality and alternate lifestyles. Um, some of you shared with me your own, um, you know, what you're dealing with right now as a family or with your friends, that this is a very real situation in my life and you had questions about relatability and things. Um, this conversation surrounding the LGBTQ community and the church has been one of the most divisive issues among Christians in America today. Entire denominations right now are on the verge of splitting over this very issue because they can't come to terms or define their position of what the church is gonna be and the relationship it's gonna have with this conversation. 
but not just in the church, and I think you guys know this. This is one of the most politically charged subjects in our land right now. Now, whether that be a Christian baker who lives in Colorado who's been sued multiple times because he would not bake a cake or a dessert for a gay wedding or a gay event, whether it's that, or just watching the Olympics a couple weeks ago where they welcomed the very first transgender athlete into the Olympics, or um, seeing for the first time that the President of the United States has a transgender member of his cabinet. I mean, these are things that we see, and they're part of the political realm um, every day of our lives. So it's no surprise to read questions like this. It's front and center in our world today. It's really front and center in all of our lives. So um, an interesting observation that I made as I was reading all the questions about this topic is that the questions were not so much oriented around what does the Bible say about this? Not a lot of questions came in about what does the Bible say about homosexuality or alternate lifestyles or anything like that, but rather the questions were more like how do I relate to or how do I connect or build a bridge without uh, sounding judgmental or intolerant. I have a family member who is living, living this lifestyle. How do I express love and compassion? How do I, or what do I do? What's my response to? The questions were more like that. So what that says to me is that, at least for those who submitted the questions, um, that the biblical doctrine about this maybe is resolved for you. Um, and the emphasis is more on figuring out how to evangelize and build bridges. That may be also true for us as a congregation, but I would not make a blanket assumption about our church family that this matter is completely resolved doctrinally for each one of us and no questions about it biblically remain. I would not make that assumption about our church, but maybe the questions that were submitted more reflect that point of view. What I do know, and I think you know as well, is that this conversation is not going away. So Christians cannot have a position of of bury their heads in the sand, so to speak, and hope that one day we'll pull our heads out of the sand and it will all go back to the way it used to be. And um, And that this will just go away and this is just a phase we're going through as a country. Friends, this is not a phase we're going through as a country. This conversation is not going away. The reality is this, that um, our secular society that we live in is growing more and more and more approving of homosexuality and alternate lifestyles. Sexuality in general in our society is becoming so warped and manipulated and perverted that I predict that uh, Christians are going to continue to feel more and more as though we are failing in our attempts to promote a biblical view of sexuality. So what do we do? I mean, that's the question. That's really the question that's being asked. What do we do? This is a question that the church here in America has been trying to figure out for quite some time now. And your questions reflect that. What do we do? How to relate? How can I get through to my friends? I've got family, I've got friends, I've got neighbors. What, what do I do? How do I make gains in this conversation? How do I show the correct way? How, how do I do these things? So a question emerges from all of that. And again, this is a, a summarization of many questions. And it's the simple question that hopefully serves as a starting point for this specific topic. And the question is this, how can we be an effective witness in the world on the issue of homosexuality? I believe that question reflects what you're asking. 
Back in June, my wife and I spent the night in downtown Chicago. Uh, my wife is from Chicago. She loves going to Chicago. Every chance we get to go to Chicago, she loves to do it. Um, we do all the Chicago things. We walk up and down Michigan Avenue. We hit our favorite restaurants. We go to our favorite shops. We take our picture in front of the mirror bean thing down there, and, and that's what we do. And if you've ever been to Chicago, you know what I'm talking about. So when we were in Chicago, um, our trip was during Pride Month, and Pride Month, if you know anything about Chicago, is really huge in Chicago. Lots of festivities, lots of festivals. Of, uh, many of the buildings in downtown Chicago, they changed their night lighting scheme to reflect the rainbow during Pride Month. So as you go out to the planetarium, if you've ever been out there, where you have the most beautiful uh, pictures of the skyline of Chicago, then you're going to notice all the buildings are changed to the rainbow color, co colors for Pride. Uh, what we didn't know until we got there um, was that it was actually Pride Weekend in Chicago, the same weekend we were there. So downtown, there's an, a park called Grant Parks, this beautiful big area, and literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands, seas of people um, crammed into Pride Park to have this um, Pride Festival. And as we were walking down that direction, you could hear it, you could hear the music, and, and, and we didn't go down there. But we, we kind of walked down the street and we could look down the street and we could see the sea of people and this big festival happening. And so we found a little elevated area. And like I said, we were a block or two away, but we could look down at what was happening. And we just kind of observed this. And one thing I noticed is that as people were coming out of the entrance of the festival, um, they would come down the street and uh, there was a large intersection and they would wait to cross the street and, and go out there. And, and I looked and there was a guy in the middle of this crowd of people, and he was holding a big sign that said, Jesus is Lord. Now, I zoomed in as far as I could with my little iPhone, and I took a picture of this group of people waiting across the street that had, you can see the festival in the background. That's what they were leaving. And, and I just observed, Jesus is, is Lord. And I, and I wondered, and I, I sat and watched for a couple minutes, and I, and I had this thought go through my mind. I wonder if this guy is doing more harm than good. Now stay with me on this. Just an observation. I wonder if he's doing more harm than good. I wonder if he is being an effective witness for Jesus. Or is he giving all these folks that have just left the Pride Festival more reason to reject the church, more reason to reject Jesus, more reason to look at Christians with disdain for being judgmental and intolerant? I wonder if anybody in that group right there had uh, this thought go through my mind. How dare that guy come down here? How dare that Christian come down here and tell me that my life isn't any good? And I wonder, what makes him so good and me so bad? Is this an effective witness for the church on the issue of homosexuality? Stand on street corners with signs that basically communicate to everybody standing on the street there, you're wrong, I'm right. You're going to hell, I'm going to heaven. I wonder. I just think about those things. Back in 2018, our family was in New York City on vacation. And we took a tour of that city in an open-air, double-decker bus, which when we were getting ready to do it, I thought this was going to be dumb. It actually turned out to be one of the greatest things we did. If you ever are in New York City, which I don't know why anybody would want to go back there, but if you're ever there in New York City, take a double uh, open-air, double-decker bus tour. It's, it's a great way to see the tour. And uh, on this tour, we drove past the very famous historic 
Trinity Church and whose congregation was founded in 1697. They've had several buildings over the years, but since 1846, they have been in the current building they're in now. It's this beautiful, historic um, church that's on the tour stop of any tour. So we came across this beautiful, old, historic Episcopalian church, and even though I was not shocked at all by what I saw, I was still sad by what I saw. Because flying atop of the church's flagpole, sitting right in front of the front door of the church, was the pride flag right on the church grounds. And, um, and I was sad to see that. Um, we were also in New York during Pride Month. I don't know why our vacations line up with Pride, pride Months. I don't know why that is. It just worked out that way. So I went to the church's website that night when we got back to our hotel because I was curious about this. And uh, learned that uh, the pastor had a big flag-raising ceremony a few days earlier with this flag. And held a uh, large prayer time at the base of that flag with members of the congregation. Thanking God for his approval for this lifestyle. And um, I wonder, is this the right approach? Is that the right approach? Is this how we can have an effective witness to the world on the issue of homosexuality, where we fully embrace it right along with our secular society, is that how we're going to be an effective witness to our world on this subject? And, and right here lies the problem, at least the way I see it. The church is either the weird guy holding the sign out of touch with reality, standing out like a sore thumb, probably ineffective but correct with his messaging. Or the church is the pride-raising flag, full inclusion, it's not a sin, God just loves everyone, could care less about how you express your love sexually as long as you are committed and faithful to the one that you love. It seems to me like this is where the church is at these days with its witness. For the most part, one stands against, the other stands with, and let me just tell you, neither one of them is doing a hill of beans a difference for the kingdom. So the question, how can we be an effective witness to a world on the issue of homosexuality? There's two things I wanna share with you today. There's probably about 27 things rolling around up here but I don't have time for 27. I have maybe time for two. This is a much larger discussion than what we're gonna get into today, but I do believe that we can start answering this question with these two things I wanna share with you. The first one is this, and if you're taking notes, this is what's in the app. First thing that we must have as a church is we must have clarity on what the Bible actually teaches. We've got to have clarity. And it starts right there. And, and from my point of view, herein lies a huge problem with this entire conversation. The church has not been clear on what the Bible teaches about this. Even right here in northwest Arkansas, where we're not just the Bible belt, we are the center buckle on the Bible belt right here. You visit a handful of churches right here in northwest Arkansas, the buckle of the Bible belt of our country when it comes to Christianity and you are not gonna get a clear picture of this. You are not gonna get the same teaching in all our teachers. You're, you're not going to hear the same message that you're gonna hear from me today. 
But when you take the totality of what the Bible teaches about proper sexual conduct, there is no doubt about the clear and undisputable teaching of Scripture is that intimacy is reserved specifically for a relationship between a male and a female within the context of marriage. And this message is consistent both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There is not one exception in Scripture of anything other than what I just shared with you right now. Now, there are those that would argue vehemently against what I just claimed. There are many pastors just right here, right around, minutes from us, that would vehemently deny that. They read the same scriptures I do. They draw a different conclusion. And you know, it's not my goal today to unpack every single one of the, those arguments and the complexities of the debate. I'm happy to visit with any of you about any of the scriptures that might be in question, or I'd be happy to point you to some resources that will be helpful for you in your own study. But I will just say this, that there is not one time anywhere in the Bible that homosexuality is presented in a positive light. And the level of interpretive aerobatics that one has to go through to make homosexuality seem acceptable in the Bible is actually quite an amazing thing to sit back and watch somebody try to do. But here's what the Bible says. Um, I'm gonna look at one verse, one passage in the Old Testament, one passage in the New Testament. There are others that we could look at, but this is what I'm gonna take time to do today. Here's what the Bible says in the Old Testament, that when a man lies with another man as he would with a woman, the Bible says that that act, that action is a detestable thing in God's eyes. Now, like I said, we read that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, God gives us this, gives the Israelites this long list of do's and do nots about sexual relationships. And it's clearly spelled out in, in, in a few chapters of the Bible that was instructions for the Israelites. Um, the Bible tells us why God did that. Leviticus chapter 18, you don't need to turn there unless you're really quick, uh, but you can uh, look on the screen behind me. The Bible tells us why God gives such detailed, detailed instructions about this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they did, as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. It's like God's telling him, listen, remember when you guys were all slaves in Egypt? You saw and you were exposed to a lot of things that I don't like. And where you're going, where I'm sending you, the promised land and the people who live there, you're gonna see things and they do things I don't like, I don't approve of it. And so what I'm calling you out to be is different. I'm calling you out to be separate. I'm gonna use you as an example to the whole world about what, in this case, what sexual purity is gonna look like and what reflects my desire and my wishes. And that's why God teaches them to be and live differently. And consequently, that's no different for the church today. God has not changed in this regard. His call is for the church to live holy lives, to not blend into the world, to be aliens and strangers that are in this world. Our, this world is not our home. Our home is one day, our citizenship is gonna be in heaven. So while we're here, we stand out. We don't think like, look like, dress like, act like, go to the same place, do the same things, behave the same way. We are Christians and we are different. God's not changed 
in his desire for his holy people in how they behave. It's the same thing. So he elaborates. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, he gives this specific command to the Israelites. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. That action is detestable. Pretty clear, pretty straightforward. The very next chapter, God says this to Moses in Leviticus 19, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holiness is another call for separation, to be different. Don't look like everybody else. You've got a different calling on your life. So all of chapter 19 is about living daily as holy people and how the holy people of God interact in godly ways. So chapter 18 is about holiness when it comes to intimacy, our sexuality. Chapter 19 is all about holiness as it relates to our interactions with the world. And then by the time you get to chapter 20, God reveals what the consequences will be for not being holy, for being an unholy people. So Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, God says this again. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They will be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. I read these things. We could look at a few other examples, but I've got a question for you today, church. Has God had a change of heart since talking to Moses? That's the question. Many would say he has. Do you think God was like, well, we're gonna give this a try, and if that doesn't work out, I'm gonna move you to a new place with a new set of circumstances, and we'll try something different. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. But there are those who would argue just that, that when God gave these commands to Moses about his desires for sexual purity and holiness, that uh, they would say, well, that was back then and this is now, and God certainly didn't mean for them what he means for us, and God certainly changed his mind and his opinion. And he's, you know, that's an ancient way of looking at we're modern-day people. Now, the argument that many people like to bring up, and like I said, I'm not gonna unpack arguments so much today, but this one's kind of a big one, and I no doubt you've heard it. It's like, well, you know what? Christians say this. Pastors say this. You know, the Old Testament has a lot of rules, and you're singling out a few of them, but if you expand all the rules in those few chapters of the Bible, well, you're also going to read that, uh, that you're not supposed to eat certain kinds of food, especially pork, and, and we eat lots of pork today. I don't know about you. I love Wright's Barbecue. I go down there and have a great pork dinner. It's awesome. But you don't follow that rule. Joe, I noticed you just got your beard trimmed the other day. And you know what the rule says? Don't trim off your beard. So I guess you're not following the Bible. Yeah, I did get my beard trimmed because everybody thought I was applying to be on the show Duck Dynasty. That's what they thought. So I had to trim this up a little bit. But that's what they say. Did you ever trim your beard? Because that's, that's something God didn't want the Israelites to do. So you don't follow that rule. Why follow this one? You know, hey, do you wear clothes that have different kinds of fabrics woven together? Woven together? Yeah, probably all of us. Well, the Old Testament says don't do that. Anybody who would say that, from my point of view, my understanding of Scripture, uh, that argument is simply not understanding how the Old Testament is put together and what God is doing with his people. Sam Albury says it like this, probably a little clearer than I could. He says, the Old Testament is not a flat landscape. 
It is not just a lineup of instructions and regulations, each of which is equally binding. It has a particular shape to it, a shape whose contour, emphasis, and priorities are outlined and fulfilled by Jesus himself, who said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What he's getting to is many things shifted when Jesus came onto the scene, but what did not shift is God's moral law. What God believes about purity and a whole other other things. Timothy Keller says it like this, the coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. Now think about it, I think that's an incredible insight. The coming of Jesus changed how God's people worship, not how God's people live. He goes on to say, the moral law outlines God's own character for us, is his integrity, love, and faithfulness, And so all the Old Testament says, all that it says about loving your neighbor and caring for the poor and generosity with your possessions and your social relationships and your commitment to the family are all still in force. The New Testament continues to forbid things like murder and committing adultery and all of the sex ethic of the Old Testament is repeated and stated throughout the New Testament. And Timothy Keller says it like this, and I agree with it 100%. If the New Testament has, reaffirmed, or has reaffirmed an Old Testament commandment, then it is still in force for us today. So let's go to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say? There's several places we look at, but let's look at what Paul said in the book of Romans chapter one. He makes this analysis of people. He says, God gave them over in the, in, in the, God gave them, gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Look at verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, the scriptures here in the New Testament, it's very consistent. The homosexual lifestyle is neither God's intention, nor is it his desire, nor does he ever promote it as what he believes is best for his people. Now, of course, again, there's a counter argument to everything. People could argue that um, in a very convincing way, in fact, that it's not that way. But at the end of the day, the Bible leaves us zero doubt on what God's will is on this subject. And in order to draw a different conclusion than what the Bible clearly states, one has to jump through a lot of interpretive hoops to twist and spin and make the Bible try to sound different than what it plainly says. So I come back to this whole idea of clarity. We as a church must be clear on what the Bible teaches. And if we are not clear, we will never be an effective witness to anybody on this subject matter. So here's the second thing I'd like to share with you today because this first one leads right into the second thing. The Bible, having clarity on what the Bible teaches helps us do this. Number two, be intentional with our message. Clarity of God's word helps us be intentional with our message. When these conversations happen, when we are in situations and opportunities come, we cannot afford to be unclear. 
on what the Bible teaches about this subject. And why can we not be unclear? Why can it just not be a little bit gray for us? Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just, you know, whatever you want to do? Why can't that be our, our answer? Well, one, it's not God's answer, but two, if that's our feelings, which honestly, that right there is the message in many of our churches today. Just love one another, and, and, which sounds biblical. It is biblical. Love one another. Why are you so worked up? God doesn't care. You be you. You, you go do what makes you feel good. Why can't that be our message? It's because we're never going to rescue anyone from the gates of hell with that. So being clear helps us be intentional with our message. It helps us be intentional with the good news. And what is the intentional message of the good news of the gospel? What is that? It is this. The good news is for everyone. That's what we have to be intentional about. We haven't always shined with this part of the gospel, especially when discussing homosexuality. We have not always shined. We must be intentional that the message of the gospel is that there is nobody who is too far gone or too far away for God's love to reach them. The clarity we need to have, the intentionality with the gospel, is that we are all sinners, regardless of the sin. We are all sinners, and every last one of us needs a savior. I don't know if we can clearly communicate that without having clarity on what the Bible says, because how can you make that claim that the gospel is for everyone, we're all sinners in need of a savior, if we're not clear on the problem at hand? Regardless of the sin, regardless how anyone perceives certain sins over any other sin, the fact remains, we are all sinners. We need a savior. Not a one of us is worthy of salvation. Not a one of us in this room today would have a prayer of ever making it to heaven with Jesus. That's the reality. And, and we would have a prayer in the world. I believe the struggle for many Christians is that sometimes we have a hard time. We have the hardest time actually seeing beyond the specific sin, seeing beyond the politics of the day, seeing beyond the disagreements that we have with one another, seeing beyond all of that and realizing that behind all of that, there is a person who is deeply loved by God, whom Jesus died on the cross for and whom we are called to love and do everything we can to point them to Jesus Christ. And in that regard, we're no different than anybody else. We need to remember, I think, Paul's counsel to Timothy. And we need to take it to heart. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, he says, the Lord's servant, and then that overlays on us, which we all are that. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone able to teach, not resentful. How are we doing with that? Opponents, who are our opponents? It would be anybody who stands opposed to the gospel message. Maybe we can make this more personal. Maybe not opponents. Maybe we just, let's, let's, let's edge it out just a little bit. The gay community must be gently instructed. 
in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Friends, it's clarity leads us to the understanding that we are ambassadors for Christ, like we talked about last week. We are God's spokesman here on earth and to everybody, not just to those whom we find agreement with, but with those that we find disagreement with. We are Christ's ambassadors with the ministry of reconciliation, even to those whom we may not fully understand decisions for why things play out the way they do. Our goal is certainly not to compromise, but neither is our goal to become a quarrelsome person. And what Paul is implying to Timothy is quarrelsome, being a quarrelsome, argumentative, mean-spirited person is not gonna do any good. So he says, Timothy, don't be quarrelsome. Don't be an argumentative guy. No way. And so what are the words that Paul uses? These are words that we often fail to remember when this subject comes up. What does he say? Kindness to everyone. How are we doing on that? Kindness. He uses this word in this text, gentle. Do you see that? Gently instruct. I don't think in this conversation we come at anybody with hammers and knives and guns and, and forcing them to agree. I, I think there's a gentleness that's required here of the church. We haven't been good at that as a whole. And he says, don't forget what, this is all with hope. There is a hope that something can change. There is a, a, a preferred vision that we would have for anybody in sin that they would come into the family of God. There's hope. What else do we hope? Through hope that there would be a recognition that they would, what's Paul say? Come to their senses. And what would happen? That they would be able to escape. What's Paul's word? Escape from the trap of the devil. Not the trap of the church, not, not those things, but there is a spiritual component here that they are entrapped, they are enslaved, just like any sinner is outside of Jesus, and that they would escape that. So not quarrelsome, kindness, gently, hope. Our goal is they come to their senses, escape the trap of the devil. This is all part of the intentionality of our message, which we will never get to the intentionality of the good news if we don't have clarity on what the Bible actually teaches. 17 years ago, I had an experience that deeply impacted my life. I can't, I can't believe it's actually been 17 years already as I think back on it. I've never forgotten it. I was attending a Christian conference with several friends of mine. It was a multiple day conference and the conference ended early in the evening and all of us had flights the next day. So we had our whole evening to go do something fun. So we went out to dinner and we went to a movie. And I remember standing in line at the concessions waiting to get, um, uh, I'm sure it was Diet Coke and Milk Duds, but anyway, <laughs> I'm standing there waiting. It's a great combination, just saying. And right in front of me, what was very obvious to the, the naked eye was that there was two homosexual men who were there as a couple. This is 17 years ago. And I'm not, I'm not proud to say this, but the thoughts that went through my mind in that moment as I waiting in line was this. Boy, I sure hope they're not going to the same movie as me. I hope I don't have to see them in there. Ah, oh, that's gross. Look at them hold hands. Look at them all snugly. Mm. That was what was going through my mind. Not proud of it. 
just being honest. I just come from a Christian conference. Some of the greatest preachers in America, some of the greatest worship service you ever got to hear, instructed from the very best. Two hours later. <laughs> and then right then and there, I didn't hear a voice, but I know it was the Holy Spirit. And God gave me a message that very night. And it was this, Joe, I love them just as much as I love you. Clear as a bell. The sense of how, how dare you, how dare you have such disdain in your heart for somebody I so deeply love and died for. Clear as a bell. And as I went into that movie and I sat there contemplating what was obviously for me a very heavy moment with God, this thought came to my mind and I've never forgotten it. And it has been a guiding statement in my ministry since that day. And it's this, I'll share it with you. What rang loud and clear to me from the Holy Spirit that night is this. No one is ever hated into the loving arms of Jesus. It's never happened before. Think about it. No one is ever hated into the loving arms of Jesus. And that has become my answer, not just for this conversation, but for every conversation of those who I disagree or they don't line up with me biblically or just flat out reject the things of God. No one is ever hated into the loving arms of Jesus. It just doesn't ever work out that way. We see the truth clearly when we read the Bible. We see the truths of the gospel. We see the clarity of scripture played out in Jesus' life. And what I keep coming back to, and I alluded to this last week, it just doesn't seem, when you study the life of Jesus and his ministry and his preaching, it just doesn't seem that Jesus was all consumed with just how wrong lost people were. Jesus didn't seem to have, um, not with lost people anyway, with the religious people, yes, but with lost people, he didn't seem to have like this fire and brimstone pre street preacher kind of mentality, condemning the whole world to hell, in fact, he had just the opposite. He found a way, and there's lots of examples of this. And again, like I said last week, Jesus was a pro at this. He found a way to love those whose behavior he found personally reprehensible. And that was certainly a unique feature of Jesus, a unique, a unique characteristic that we struggle with ourselves. If you look at many of the examples in the Bible, like the woman caught in adultery and, and Zacchaeus, and last week we looked at, at, at Matthew the tax collector and, and the woman at the well, and these are just a few examples where you could say the behavior in people radically changed once they were touched by the love of Jesus Christ. So how do we respond as a church? How do, I believe this is the simplest answer. It's the, it's the right answer. It's the... It's the clearest response to the question at hand is that we strive to respond like Jesus did who over and over and over again led with compassion and patience because no one is ever hated into the loving arms of Jesus. The, you know, 
Jesus never once gave up an inch of compromise. He did not go, oh, you just go do you and I'll do me. It was, Jesus was never that way. And the church shouldn't be that way. But he led out with compassion and patience. He just loved people. And there were many times, the, the Bible just tells us, Jesus looked out at people and he had great compassion on them. I think that's a character trait that we as a church need to grow in. So the question becomes, how, or the question is, how can we be an effective witness to the world on the issue of homosexuality? It begins with having clarity on what the Bible teaches. And we've done a, 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 an injustice to the world by by preachers and Christians not being clear with our message, with the Bible's message. It starts there. Because when we start there and we are clear, then we can be intentional with the message. And the intentionality of the good news is, is that Jesus is for everybody. We don't have to give up any ground, we don't have to compromise to be able to look at somebody lovingly and say, Jesus loves you have the same level of compassion that Jesus did. Now as I say these things, the other, you know, I said I've got about 27 things rolling around in my mind and maybe we'll deal with some of those things later, but this issue is complex and, um, and it's not gonna be solved overnight. But what we can do as a church family to start answering this question is be clear and be intentional and trust the Holy Spirit to do his work as well. It's messy, it's messy, but so are most things in life when you're trying to rescue someone from the grips of our enemy. So let me just stop right there. Um, let's pray together, and let's just ask God's help in this because we need his help to have the levels of compassion that Jesus had. Lord, I just thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, I thank you for not leaving this a gray area, even though many will try to make it so, it is not. But Lord, be that as it may, Help us to have a tone and a temperament and a mentality of, 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 of not sounding judgmental or intolerant, but just having the grace and love and compassion that you had. Lord, we're asking for your help in this because we need help in this. Lord, I, I pray that when questions arise, we go to your word for clarity first. And that, Lord, your clarity from your word helps us be intentional with the message that the good news is for everyone. And, Lord, I pray for anybody in our church today who is on the front lines of this conversation. And, Lord, the front lines may be a, a coworker, a neighbor, a son, a daughter, a family friend. And, your, and our hearts are just heavy. Lord, I pray you give us the right words and the temperament. And Lord, as your word says, that when the opportunities come, that we'd be ready and our, our, we would be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Lord, I, I, Lord, help us to go to our knees and pray. And Lord, put these things in your hands and allow you to open doors and make opportunities. Lord, all, all the complexities of our relationships and how our lives intersect with this conversation, Lord, we just ask for your help. But Lord, help us be clear and intentional with all the levels of compassion that you had because you did it best, Lord. Hate never led the way because no one's ever hated into the loving arms of Jesus. So help us, God, in this. In Jesus' name, amen.